Hello and welcome to This Is Modern Rock, the podcast that takes a look at the modern rock charts one month at a time. I'm your host, Will Westerkow, and we are here in February of 1992, and to help me out today is my frequent and wonderful guest, Orly. Hi, Orly. Hello. How's it going? Great. Welcome back. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Anything new going on? The world is a mess. Mm -hmm. I don't know. So there's that, you know. Yeah, things are on fire. Mm -hmm. My garden's been a mess, but my summer's been okay. Yeah. What's going on with the garden? I'm pretty sure it has an infestation of bugs. Ooh. Fun stuff. I'll tell you one thing I've been up to. Okay. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. How are you doing? (laughs) I'm doing great. Every now and then I decide to Rather than dig back into the old modern rock charts, I like to see what's going on in today's modern rock charts. Okay. And the Billboard charts are no longer called modern rock. They're called hot alternative songs or something like that. Yeah, they're hot indeed. And I looked at last week's charts and I was amazed to see that 14 of the top 25 songs were Billie Eilish. (laughs) (laughs) No. Because they've changed the way that they determine the chart position. So a lot of it's based on streaming. So Billie Eilish just had a new album come out, which I guess was very much anticipated. I just wish that teenage girls harnessed their power better. For good? Yeah, I I think the last time they really nailed it was when all those BTS fans bought all up the tickets for... Trump's, a Trump rally or yeah, something. Yeah, the uh-huh. Trump rally. Like, mm, 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 chef's kiss. That was so good. I want more of that. <laughs> yeah. And you know what? I, I have nothing against Billie Eilish. But no, anytime no, just, a chart has 14 out of 25 I mean, are the same artist, something's wrong and they need to figure out a new way to uh, to do that, I think. Well, not only that, but I think that goes to show that when they say that now that you, the internet's out there, anyone can do it. And it's a bigger lie than ever. Yeah. Well, right on. We're going to get into February of 1992 on the Billboard Modern Rock charts today. But before we do, I do want to mention something. There are so many songs in February of 1992 that I want to feature and spotlight that I am doing it in two episodes. Got it. Okay. And I easily could have done three. When are we getting the next one next episode? Next episode's also going to be February 1992. Oh. Today we're going to talk about all of the big hits from the charts. So we've got okay. we've got three number ones and we've got a number two. All right. Next episode, we're going to talk about some maybe lesser known songs, some kind of weird stuff that was lower down on the charts. Okay. And yet, I didn't have room to fit some really important songs. So, Such as? Well, I guess I could play a short clip and see if you can name the song in one note. How about that? Okay. Here's a song. This hit number three on the modern rock charts this month. Uh huh. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so Come As You Are is one. Also hitting its peak chart position in February of 1992, this next song hit number 25 on the modern rock charts. Oh, that's crazy. That's one of my favorite Nirvana songs. That's one of my favorite Nirvana songs, too. Yeah. Yeah. That was Lithium by mm-hmm. Nirvana. I mm-hmm. imagine most listeners probably recognize that. Mm-hmm. I feel weird about not featuring them. I mean, they're very impactful for me, but not at this time. I didn't know these songs when they came out. And here's uh, here's another one that hit its peak position this month. This one hit number 18 on the charts. 
What? That's, yeah, that's my favorite there. Alive, the song that changed my life. Why am I here if I'm not going to talk about the song that changed my life? If you put it that way, I feel like we have to talk about it. No, I was going to skip them because I just figured, A, we're going to hear plenty of Nirvana and Pearl Jam in the future. B, I figured everybody listening already knows the song really, really well. Yeah, they do. There's also one more song I just thought we should mention. We're not going to hear it, but the band Live also mm. hit the modern rock charts for the first time this month they reached Is number not, number nine with operation spirit mm. tyranny of tradition mm. how does that one go did you give it up did you give it up i really liked them for a minute they were good well let's get into the songs of february 1992 these are the big ones quick refresher U2's mysterious ways just finished up a nine-week run on the top of the modern rock charts and Coming into the first week of February, we finally have a new number one. It is the Talking Heads' first and only number one modern rock hit. Right. Talking Heads are, I would say, a legendary band. And sure. I would assume most listeners are somewhat familiar with them, but here's the uh, the Cliff's Notes version. The band consists of singer David Byrne, bassist Tina Weymouth, drummer Chris France, and keyboardist, guitarist Jerry Harrison. They were formed in New York in 1975, and although they're often associated with the punk scene, they quickly transcended those roots, incorporating everything from new wave to dance, funk to world beat into their sound. They sure did. In the U.S., Talking Heads, they only cracked the top 10 once. They hit number nine with Burning Down the House. Mm-hmm. In the U.K., they also hit the top 10 one time, hitting number six with Road to Nowhere. And... I think they're probably best remembered today for their 1981 song, Once in a Lifetime. Anyway, by February 1992, the band wasn't just falling apart. They actually were already broken up. The science had been there for a while. Tina Weymouth and Chris France, they had a side project called the Tom Tom Club, mm-hmm. which had already released three albums by this point. Three albums. Mm-hmm. That's like your foot is all the way in another door. Exactly. Jerry Harrison had also released three solo albums by this point. (laughs) David Byrne, if you count the five soundtrack albums that he worked on, he had released seven solo albums by 1992. So they were just like old pals he used to play music together. Yeah. And in December of 1991, the rest of the band learned that David Byrne had quit after they read about it in an LA Times article. (gasps) Rude. (laughs) Uh, In his defense, I've heard that David Byrne may have autism spectrum disorder. Does that excuse his behavior? Yeah, I mean, he could have, you know, assumed something like the behaviors are all there for a person who has quit the band. I'm sure they all realize that I have not played music with them in the past seven years. (laughs) (laughs) It seemed obvious to me. I had made seven solo albums. (laughs) One for every year I was not with this band. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I guess the question is, how exactly do the Talking Heads score a number one modern rock hit two months after the band had split? And I should say four years after their final album. Where is this song from? Well, exactly. It's because the song (laughs) we're going to hear, Saxon Violins, it appeared on the soundtrack to the Vim Vendors cyberpunk noir epic Until the End of the World. I have never heard of that at all. The original cut for this film was 20 hours long. (laughs) (laughs) And under pressure from Warner Brothers, vendors cut the film down to a five-hour-long director's cut. Oof. 
The studio still didn't like that, obviously. So they hacked it down to two and a half hours, released it to the theaters, and apparently it's super confusing and disjointed. It makes no sense. Because they didn't know the story. Sure, or maybe it just can't be told in two and a half hours. Right. Clearly the film didn't do very well, right? Critics didn't like it. Theater goers didn't see it. But this song. Well, not just this song, the soundtrack. Oh. This soundtrack has been named by some the best soundtrack of the 90s. Who are these some? I don't know. Yeah, thank you very much. All right. Cite your sources. There are, there's some pretty <laughs> hot competition for that title, but I have read some people. Have you some seen people, singles? Mm, let me tell you who's on the soundtrack. In addition to Talking Heads... We've also got a rare and classic REM track called Fretless. Okay. Uh, we've got Depeche Mode. We've got Elvis Costello covering the kinks. We've got Patti Smith, Julie Cruz. It is full of well-known and well-loved alternative artists. Old ones. <laughs> <laughs> I see where you are. You're like, this can't be the best soundtrack of the 90s because it's full of 80s bands. Correct. Yeah. Um <laughs> Do you want to listen to Saxon Violins? Yeah. All right. Saxon Violins by The Talking Heads. This spent one week on top of the modern rock charts in February of 1992. I think that's a really interesting, cool song that would never have made it to number one if it wasn't Talking Heads or some other really well-established band. Yeah, I find it strange, honestly. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's a cool song, for sure. But I don't think it's doing anything super special. I think it's kind of special. I think it's doing some really neat stuff there. I think there's cool textures and interesting sounds and rhythms okay yes i guess for me when i say something special it's like an emotional response Mm -hmm. and so when i listen to the song i'm like wow there is just like you said it's very interesting it's textured it's nuanced there's cool parts but to me it's more like mood music or dance music to where like it's not the main event. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's soundtrack music, too. One other thing I think is really interesting is the music for this was written back in 87 or 88 when they were working on the last Talking Heads album, Naked. Mm-hmm. But David Byrne didn't write the words for this until he already knew it was going to be a song on the Until mm. the End of the World soundtrack. And so the movie was supposed to take place in the future. Okay. The, the year 2000. No. Yes. No. Yeah. <laughs> so this is David Byrne trying to The year 2000 was 10 years away. Yeah. 8 years away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not that That's far not in the future. That's not the future. Well, I mean, I guess we could only hope that 8 years in the future we're not doing much worse than this. Can you imagine the future of 2029? Right. What, what will the world be like? 2029. Yeah. Anyway, there's uh, I'm reading a quote from David Byrne where he's basically thinking about what the year 2000 is going to be like. And um, 
ideas he came up with were mm-hmm. like lyrics sponsored by Coke and Pepsi, mm. a Millie Vanilli revival. Mm. <laughs> Little did he know it was spray tans <laughs> and ultra low rise jeans. Yeah, and new metal. Mm, and new metal. Yeah, this should have been Talking Heads boy band and or new metal track. Yes. David Byrne, not good at predicting the future. He is not Nostradamus. <laughs> but you know what? I think still good at, at writing interesting songs and For lyrics. For sure. Yeah. I want that song on at a party, you know? I want that 40-second fade out. <laughs> uh, here's my question. I'm curious about, there's an F-bomb in here. I can't remember the, the exact lyric. He says something like, mom and pop. Go fuck yourself. <laughs> I don't know what it was. Oh, I thought I said like my mom and pop are going to fuck you up. They'll fuck you up. Yep. That's yeah. what it is. Um, <laughs> did it get beeped out? Did they cut the entire verse? Was that something that they heard on you the know, radio? I think back then I would sometimes hear the F-bomb in songs because they're like, eh, it's, it's kind of background enough. You know it's what? not like a standout Yeah, thing. you're right. There's a few songs I can think of. Isn't there an F-bomb in What's the Frequency, Kenneth? Yes. Yeah. And you, it's so buried. Yeah. You can, he, they just say it over and over again. It's like, it's plausible deniability, mm-hmm. right? They're like, David Byrne, look at that guy. He's a clean cut, well-mannered. So respectable. Man, yeah. All right. That was Saxon Violins. Yeah. Here's something you may have been asking yourself, mm-hmm. especially those U2 fans of you out there. U2. Wait, you, you have two fans? What? <laughs> <laughs> No, the but band. this is for both of your fans. No, Just listen, Paul and <laughs> Jeremy. Shout out to Paul and Jeremy. Those guys have listened to every episode, as far as I know. <laughs> Thanks, guys. So, you two released their classic album Octung Baby" a few months ago, right? We heard at least two, maybe three songs from that uh-huh. album already. But there is a song off that album called "Until the End of the World." Okay. So. I'm sure people are asking themselves, we've got this movie soundtrack, yeah. Until the get End on, of the get World. It together. We've got this U2 song, Until the End of the World. Slap it on there. It was on there. Oh. It was on there. And not only was it on the soundtrack, it reached number four on the modern rock charts this month. Oh, even more to talk about. Anyway, I thought it was kind of cool that we've got two songs on the charts at the same time from the soundtrack. Yeah. But Talking Heads only on top for one week. And then we've got a new number one in the third week of February. And this is Lou Reed. This song we're going to hear was the second single from Lou Reed's 16th studio album called Magic and Lost. 16th studio album. I can't even imagine having that much in me. Yeah. Besides that, of course, he has non-solo albums, right? right? But here's something I hope you enjoy as much as me. I hope so. This song we're going to hear, it's called What's Good. It was also on the Until the End of the World soundtrack. Oh, brother. (laughs) This soundtrack is having a moment. Are you going to watch this movie now? Gosh. All uh, 20 hours of it? There's no way I'm going to watch all 20 hours. But, <laughs> you know... You'd I, watch the five-hour cut? I might watch the five-hour cut. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've got a friend who I think would be very happy and willing to watch it with me. Is it Jeremy? It's Jeremy. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? We'll call Paul up. Maybe he's interested too. <laughs> Well, Lou Reed, of course, he was the primary songwriter and frontman for the Velvet Underground. They broke up in 73. Lou Reed went solo, and his career has been a wild and uneven ride, Hmm. ranging from the highs of Transformer to the critically reviled lows of metal machine music, Hmm. or his 
Metallica collaboration, Lulu, oh. Oh. which I have not heard. Most people seem to think it's the worst thing to ever happen to Sounds music. Sounds terrible. <laughs> but anyway, in 1992, Lou Reed was definitely on an upswing. He had released some near classics, New York and Songs for Drella in the previous couple years. And his 1992 album, Magic and Loss, it became his highest charting album in the UK, reaching number six. So that's what we're going to hear. We're going to hear a song from Magic and Loss. Anyway, here it is. The number one hit, Lou Reed's What's Good. Lights, lights, Sanskrit red to a pony. I see you in my mind's eye, strangling on your tongue. What good is knowing such devotion? I've been around. I know what makes things run. What good is seeing our chocolate? What good's a computerized note? What good is cancer in April? Why no good? No good at all. What's good? It sounds like nothing. Oh, he said life's good at the end. Oh, life's good. But not fair. Yeah. Was the song good? It's fine. Yeah, uh, it's fine. It's pretty repetitive. I like that little riff, but then it just didn't do anything else. Do you feel like Lou Reed is coasting? Sure. I mean, like, look, you've got all sorts of ideas and stuff, and... He's Lou Reed, so they're going to put out whatever he wants to do. So he just like writes them up and sings them and whatever they feel good. And that's it. To me, this song seems like a first cousin of the Drama Rama song we heard last episode, Haven't Got a Clue. Mm. That song, if you all remember, it was kind of similar. It was a bunch of questions, right? Do monkeys like the zoo? Do kittens die on Christmas? Um, <laughs> Lou Reed's doing a similar thing here, right? What good's a war without killing? What good is a disease okay. that won't hurt you? Okay. They both seem to be posing these questions that neither of them really want an answer for. Sure. That being said, I don't think all of Lou Reed's questions necessarily have the same answer, right? I think a a war without killing actually sounds all right. Sounds the best. And what good is a computerized nose? I think there's a lot of people born without the sense of smell that would think it's actually pretty dang good. Okay. Are am you I, one I, of them? Am I wrong? You're like, I my, wish. Well, my sense of smell is not great. <laughs> uh, if I could go to the future, to the year 2000, and get a, a computerized like, nose, I might do it. You want to you want to smell the full spectrum of life? Oh man, can you imagine like I high, can high def? That's how I sm- I smell in high def. Yeah, food tastes amazing uh-huh. when it's good, and smells are utterly vile when yeah. they're not good. You know what notes I'm getting from this wine? Tell me, grape, grape. <laughs> you know I'm getting mostly grape as well. <laughs> okay, so it's not just my note. Okay, good. It was a pretty straightforward song, and I yeah. think I think you could probably have some fun going through the lyric sheet sure and picking it apart and doing some analysis on that but no it's not musically pushing any boundaries and right it definitely doesn't feel like an exciting new phase of no i mean music. that was the big thing that with this group of songs is it just seemed like the 80s like it seemed like a rehash sure although i mean in some sense that song could have also been the 70s or it could have been the late 60s. I don't know. Sure. Yeah. 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 So after three weeks on top of the charts, we've got a new number one in the final week of wait, February. Wait, wait, wait. Let me, let me get this straight. The okay. f- number one was Talking Heads for three weeks? One week. One week. One week. Then we've got three weeks of Lou Reed on top. That is fucking nuts. I agree. That's nuts. It is nuts. All that other stuff is out there. Alive. Mm. 
lithium come as you come are, as you are. Yeah. what else did you play live operation okay, even even them like there's so much out there and they're like you know what we want this middle of the road lou reed track because he's cool you i know, love i him. don't mind them throwing him a bone for a week but three weeks three weeks it seems excessive brutal yeah anyway we've got one more number one hit sugar cubes okay believe it or not this song we're gonna hear also on the until the end of the world soundtrack i just made that up this was not on the on the oh. soundtrack oh okay <laughs> <laughs> i'd really like to be on this soundtrack for the future <laughs> <laughs> so we're gonna hear from the sugar cubes they were formed in 1986 in reykjavik iceland where else is there in iceland there's other places name one uh, <laughs> you're forgetting about the town of Vic, population 320. <laughs> I love Vic. And, uh, so quaint. Don't forget Selfos, population 9,000. We don't know how any of those are pronounced. Look, it's true that we don't, but I've got one Icelandic listener, and you are the best. Thank you so much. <laughs> no, I was gonna say you, Orly, are scaring them away. They're gonna oh. they're gonna leave me a bad rating. <laughs> I love Iceland and everything about it. Here's what I know about Iceland. If you ever want to journey to the center of the earth, there's a volcano there. That's where you climb down. Okay, I don't know about that either. James Mason and Brendan Fraser, they both went to Iceland. They journeyed to the center of the earth through Iceland. And what did they find? Like crystals and stuff and monsters. I don't know. Great. Come on. Give me some monsters and crystals. Um... So Sugar Cubes formed in 86 in Iceland. They were led by Bjork, Gunn's daughter. You say Gunn's daughter? You know, no, no, no. I always thought it was Gudmund's daughter, but it apparently doesn't have a D. It's Gunn's daughter. I don't know how to say that. I think we should listen to a thing. Hold on. How do you pronounce Bjork's last name? Bjorf Gunn's daughter. Okay, so apparently her name is Bjorf. 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 Bjorf Gomen's daughter. Okay, so you know what? Everyone's been saying it wrong. You all heard it here first. Her name is Bjorf. <laughs> They're like, Bjork. And she's like, it's fine. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> yeah. All right. There are other people in the band, too. I'm not going to pronounce their names. You're not going to pronounce them correctly. That's no, well, exactly. <laughs> this is where I feel bad. Like, I want to give a shout out to the other band members hey, who, who are not Bjorf. Other guys in the sugar cubes. Hey, guys. Hey. <laughs> uh, if you want to know their names, please look them up yourselves. All right. In 1992, the sugar cubes, they released their third and final album. This one's called Stick Around for Joy. The first single hit went to number one on the modern rock charts and it stayed there for five straight months. Here it is. Hit. That was hit. And it was a hit. Yeah, I get it. Did it sound like a hit? Until that dude started rapping. <laughs> you didn't like Einar Orn? 
No, I love Bjork. Like she starts singing. I don't know. I just like I feel it. I think it was one of the first tapes I bought was her debut album debut. Mm-hmm. And I really, really liked her. I found her just totally fascinating. And I'd never heard anything like that in my life. And I just love how she, her voice breaks. And she's so cool and different. And the song sounds just like one of those songs on that album anyway. But it sounds all 80s with this rap breakdown that's not as good. Yeah. To me, like, there's elements that sound R&B. There's elements that sound I those jazz, drums. jazzy. Uh-huh. It's certainly compelling and certainly different. It is. And she is, she is, she's very compelling to me. Anyway, when she went solo, I really found like that she found herself. Mm -hmm. It's so much more interesting and cool sounding when she just goes all out on her own. So you you feel like she's being held back a little here? I do. Yeah. And I think Bjork herself... Bjorf was feeling held back too. She Bjorf, that's right. Bjorf, I forgot. Yeah, she she had been wanting to go solo prior to this, but the Sugar Cubes were locked into a three album contract, and so oh. this is her fulfilling the contract before going solo. Got so it. So we're gonna hear her debut next year, 1993. Yep, is when it comes out. Oh yes. So 1993 was when I got MTV and when I saw that Human Behavior video for the first time. Mm-hmm. My mind was blown. It's not just that she sounds great. She does sound great. She sounds completely unique. Yes, nothing. But she also, she looks unique. She looks like a star. This is a star waiting to break out. For sure. Yeah. And so I I like it as a song. I get that it was a hit. It's a little weird to me that it was a number one hit for five straight weeks. But I guess people thought it was interesting and unique enough. It's my favorite out of the four that we listened to. Yeah. It makes me wish we were hearing alternative songs from South America mm-hmm. and, you know, the Middle East, like whatever it right. is. Uganda. Like, I want to hear like, what alternative music sounds from anywhere. Yeah, right? Like, just, and it's like, I have no idea if what we're hearing is necessarily Icelandically influenced, but they have a different culture. Like, they're obviously drawing on different inspirations. Well, I was also like, is that the coolest accent in the entire world? Like, they, they can't all talk like that. Yeah, like... Is Bjork just speaking with an Icelandic accent, or is she, in fact, some kind of magical pixie? I mean, can't both be true? That, you know what? (laughs) She comes from the center of the earth. Exactly. Okay, well, five weeks on the top spot, that's going to be all the number ones for the Mm -hmm. month of February. We're going to have to go down to number two for our fourth song, and we're going to be hearing from a band called Social Distortion, which I got to say... I think it's a cool name. Yeah. I don't know. It's just evocative. It is. This is an American punk band. They were formed in Fullerton, California in 1978. Fullerton. Mm-hmm. These guys are SoCal. They are definitely SoCal. They are. And even if you didn't know they were from Fullerton, you'd like look at them and hear them for like two seconds and say, those guys are from SoCal, aren't uh-huh. they? They're led by singer slash guitarist Mike Ness. He is the only constant member of the band. What? Mm-hmm. I sometimes like to imagine that his name is Mikeness. Mikeness. Yeah. <laughs> I like to sometimes think that his name is Michael Nesmith. <laughs> Somehow related to one of the monkeys. Of course. So initially, social distortion, or as I'm going to call them for the rest social of the episode, D. Social D. Social D. They were a hardcore punk band, but they soon moved into more like roots rock 
influenced punk rock. What does that mean? So uh, they're drawing on some like country influences, some rockabilly influences. Oh, for sure, rockabilly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's called roots rock. By some people. You. Yes. Okay. And hopefully some other people that aren't me. I don't, I don't know. Okay. Yeah. Uh, you know, like the roots of rock. There are Johnny Cash influences, oh, for yeah, instance, for sure. Uh, as well as let's say the Clash. Mm-hmm. Right. So in 1992, Social D released their fourth studio album. It's called Somewhere Between Heaven and Hell. Mm. So we're going to hear the song Bad Luck. This is their highest charting song, reaching number two on the modern rock charts. This is the only one I knew already out of the Uh, four. The songs we're listening to Mm -hmm. today. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, here it is. Bad luck. You got a nasty disposition. No one really knows the reason why. You got a bad, bad reputation. So my first take is that that sounds not at all rockabilly to me in the slightest. Oh, really? There's definitely some 50s rock and roll influence yeah. in there, but it's not strong. And I would not really describe that as rockabilly or cowpunk. Yeah, maybe you're right. I mean, it's like, I think it's their look more than anything. I'm picturing them in my head when I hear this song. Yeah, like exactly. They have a pretty striking look. I think people are fooled by their image. Yeah. Yeah. The tattoos, mm-hmm. the greaser hair. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I think out of the four songs, this is probably the most rock. Yeah. It's fairly straightforward rock. Very punk, straightforward. Punky rock. Uh-huh. You know, I could see why why people would be a fan of this. Sure. You know? I never was like, eh, social D, but I was never also like, turn this up. I don't know. They're like the offspring. Well, less juvenile and obnoxious. Okay, they're like the offspring's older brother. Yeah, I'll buy that. <laughs> Can we talk about bad luck for a second? Sure. Do you relate at all? I guess I wasn't listening that closely to the lyrics. I was jamming to the music. They're pretty straightforward. Someone's got bad luck. Someone's got bad luck. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I don't want to be like a sad sack over here, but I am not known for my great luck. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not a winner of things. Yeah. You know, like I did win some concert tickets in my life. But I did the thing where I listened to the radio 17 hours a day and I called every single hour. So it wasn't like, whoops, I got this. It was like I worked really hard. On the one hand, we were born in the late 20th century in the United States. So that's lucky right there. Yeah, we basically won the lottery. Right. On the other hand, every time I've ever put a coin into a slot machine, eats it. I've never got a single cent back. That's not true. For me, it's just like (laughs) dropping my money in a hole. Sure. That's mostly what it's like. Yeah. I'm fascinated by the tendency for the wealthy and successful people in the world to consider themselves not lucky. Oh, they think they're hardworking. Hardworking. Yes. And of course, they might be hardworking. Some of them probably are very hardworking. Sure. But also- Very lucky. They're in fact very lucky. Very lucky. Yes. I follow this dude on TikTok and he does like music- history slash trivia stories Mm -hmm. and one of his series is self-made is a myth Mm -hmm. and it's just like everybody who you're like oh and then they just threw out the single and blew up anything or whatever and you just like go back and you find out 
Yeah. Everyone's rich. Oh, of course. I, I love to play a game called which Hollywood stars' parents are clickable on Cli- Wikipedia. Exactly. Yeah. The answer? 90, Almost all 99% of them. Almost all. Yeah. Or in musicians, too. Mm-hmm. You're like, let me look up my favorite musician. And their parents are clickable. They are also in the business. Yes. I don't know about Social D, though. I don't think their parents are in the business. I would be willing to bet that they are not. These guys are These, working, this, working hard. Right. Social D, the one self-made band. And like, we're saying Mike Ness lives in a three-bedroom house. He's not like killing it the way some of the other people might sure. be. Sure. I mean, I don't know. He might well, be living in a mansion, but I... So this album, Somewhere Between Heaven and Hell, it sold about a quarter of a million albums. When it came out, it's since gone gold. We pre- don't know what their record deal was like. The previous though. album also went gold. So these are the kind of numbers that it's possible that Mike Ness is living very comfortably. Sure. Depending on his record deal and how Lifestyle. He, right, how he spent or saved his money. Well, my phone's not here, but I will check it as soon as I get it. In my what, hot what's Mike hands. Ness's net worth? I need to know. Is that your favorite pastime on the internet? It's not, but for some reason, it's always pre-filling it. You know, like when you're like, what is? And it's like, blah, blah, blah's net worth. Mm-hmm. And I don't look at that that often, but the internet really thinks I should. $4 million. He's worth $4 million? Mm-hmm. According to the internet. I Go mean, Ness. Yeah. Two gold albums get you four million bucks. I mean, they're just classic. The thing about Social D is they've got a sound. Mm-hmm. And I appreciate that about bands. You never hear them and you're like, who is this? You know right away. Mm-hmm. And that's cool. Yeah. Here's the other thing about Social D, though. They have pretty much been working nonstop. Like, they took a few brief still hiatuses. At still at it. Since Good for them. When did they start? 78. Tell Since 1978. How, tell me how old they are. Mike Ness, as of today, is 59 years old. Is it his birthday? No, I'm just saying as of when we recorded it, it might be different if you listen to this podcast in the future. Did Mike Ness help popularize the face tattoo? Like, would we have Post Malone without Mike Ness? Maybe not. He was one of the first face tattoo people that I was aware of. Mm -hmm. You know, and we're like, this guy, he's hardcore. Has he been to prison right and it looks like he's got the little tears but if you look closer it looks more like maybe a star and a i knew it i was gonna something. say they're stars yeah how hot topic of him <laughs> uh, i would be willing to bet there might be a hot topic out there that sells a social d shirt 100 <laughs> percent. and speaking of which one of my favorite things about the band actually is their logo I really like it. It's they've got this little dancing skeleton. With oh a, yes, a martini glass and mm-hmm. a cigarette and like a pork pie hat or something. He's cool. Yeah, it's that a guy's cool chilling. Is he skanking? He <laughs> he might be skanking. <laughs> yeah, he might be getting into the mosh or he's oh. like he's avoiding the mosh pit because he doesn't want to spill his martini. Thank you, guy. Mm-hmm. I don't want you to spill your martini on me in the mosh pit. So get this: when I was looking up this skeleton, I found out that it was drawn or designed by. Mackie Osborne. Okay. The wife of King Buzzo, Buzz Osborne, of the Melvins. Oh, Mackie's a lady. Yeah. I looked up an interview with Mackie Osborne, uh-huh. specifically about this skeleton. Oh. And they had asked her how long it took her to design it. And Mackie said, it was actually something I designed for my Happy New Year's card. And Mike sort of stole it and then told me later. They were supposed to pay me at some point if they ever made any money. So far, I haven't received any money for it. I guess they must not be making any money yet. Ouch. Rude. <laughs> but you know what? Mackie, $4 million. 
He's made the money. He's made the money. Start knocking on Mike's door. Oh my God. I'm calling you out. Intellectual property. <laughs> Jeez. Mackie needs to get paid. Seriously. That little dude's cool as hell. Yeah. Social D are definitely going to show up on the charts again. I think they charted like 10 or 11 times as late as 2010. Holy mackerel. This band, they just keep on going. Seriously. Go Nessie. So that's our four songs. And yet, with your tease about Pearl Jam's Alive changing your life, I kind of feel like we have to include it. Am I wrong? (laughs) Yes, this is what everyone's been waiting for. Gather ye round for this story. Hey, everyone, here's a song you've never heard before. You've never heard this song. It's by a band called Pearl Jam. Maybe you've heard of them. The song is Alive. Wow! At the time, 1993, so I was a little bit late on the uptake here because I just got an MTV. I was listening to like Janet Jackson and En Vogue and Boys to Men. Like that was fully my thing. It was the summer of 1993 and I'm in my house, jump roping in the house. The video for Alive comes on and it starts, it's black and white, which wasn't the norm either for video, so it caught my attention. And then the second those guitar hits... And Eddie Vedder comes up and he starts singing. I was just like immediately floored by the music. And the music that I'd been listening to and singing along to and walking around with my Walkman in, it was fun. I enjoyed it. I loved singing along to it, but it didn't hit me in the gut like this. And immediately I was just like, who is this? What's going on? It's Pearl Jam. Pearl Jam, whatever that is, I got to get into it. And so I started watching all these rock shows in hopes to find more Pearl Jam. Yeah. And I did. I'll bet. Because I'd already listened to Nirvana here and there, and I liked them, so the door was open. Sure. You know, like, I liked the Chili Peppers, I liked Nirvana, but I wasn't buying their albums. And then as soon as I got to Pearl Jam, I was like, I this is, starts a whole new chapter of my life. Yeah, Janet Jackson, throw it in the bin. I mean, pretty much. <laughs> I was listening to uh, the Bodyguard soundtrack on repeat for like two years, and yeah. so I had to move on. Sure. <laughs> Classic 90s soundtrack, though. One of the best? Only side A. Side B is pointless. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, yeah, Pearl Jam, I mean, they were the first band I ever saw live. They were the first band I saw repeatedly. Mm-hmm. And my whole high school identity was being a Pearl Jam fan. People knew you as the girl who loves Pearl Jam? Yes. Yeah. I think it was truly the first time I fell in love. I went to bed crying every single night that Eddie Vedder was not in my life. That is really sweet and <laughs> sad. <laughs> How much older is he than you? He's 15 years older than me. Okay, so that, that would have been just creepy at that point. But now... I think I'm older than his wife. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. But that's fine. It's fine, Ed. Maybe not. Maybe we're about the same age. But still, 
I remember when I found out he was 28 when I was 13, I actually thought I was going to die. Like, I thought maybe he was 22 or something, right? Okay, and then, some, like, so, something doable. 13 doable. And 13 and 22 is sick, but like, you know, it's closer. 28 was like, he's 30. Yeah. My mom had he's me. He's practically when, 45. My mom had me when she was 28. Like, there was no hope for me. He was not going to come pick me up from school. Yeah. It's not going to happen. <laughs> I think a lot of people, when they think of Pearl Jam fans, Mm -hmm. they think of a bunch of bros. Yes and no. Right. But this is interesting that like so many women clearly were very drawn to Pearl Jam and Eddie Vedder. And it wasn't just Eddie Vedder, though, because I wouldn't make friends with anyone who was an Eddie Vedder girl. Like I felt in direct opposition to them. So if someone was like, I love Pearl Jam, Eddie Vedder's so hot. I was like, cut off. You're done. Your rivalry there was so strong. You couldn't be friends. (laughs) That is intense. If you liked Eddie Vedder, I was not your friend. <laughs> but, you know, I was just a wacky teen. Uh, how are you as an adult? Wacky. <laughs> okay, well, that's February 1992, or at least the first half of it. Thank you, everyone, for listening. If you all want to do me a favor, you could write a nice review on Apple Podcasts or wherever it is that you listen to your podcasts. That'd be cool. Maybe I'll read some of them on the show at some point. If you want to write me a letter just to say hi or share something about these bands, that'd be really cool. You can reach me at thisismodernrock at gmail.com. Orly, thank you so much for joining me once again. You are so welcome. Thanks for having me. And of course, thank you everyone for listening. I really appreciate it. Tune in next time when we hear four more songs from February of 1992. Have a good one. Bye. Bye.